Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Last week, President Trump sounded newly serious about combating the coronavirus, calling himself a, quote, wartime president. Maggie Haberman on why, days later, and with the situation only worsening, the president is abandoning that message. It's Wednesday, March 25th. Hello, guys. Hi. Hi. Maggie, it is Tuesday afternoon. Can you tell us about what just happened on the Fox News Channel? Over the next two hours, the president, the vice president, and the officials tasked with leading our nation's response on the virus pandemic will join us to answer your questions all across America. We just saw Vice President Mike Pence and President Trump sit for two hours of a town hall meeting, virtual town hall meeting with Fox News from the White House, where they took questions by remote. I think a lot of us right now are just wondering, what is the potential for a national stay-at-home order? Is this something that America could be seeing in our near future? Pence answered a bunch of questions first. Carlia, I can tell you that uh, at, at no point has the White House Coronavirus Task Force discussed what some people call uh, a nationwide lockdown. Then President Trump came on for the second hour. Our people are full of vim and vigor and energy. They don't want to be locked into a a house or an apartment or some space. It's not for our country. We're not not built that way. And his message was even louder of a message that he's been delivering for the last day or so which is that while we have to take the coronavirus seriously... You know, I don't want the cure to be worse than the problem itself. In his words, the cure can't be worse than the disease. The problem being obviously the problem. And, you know, you can destroy a country this way by closing it down. And by that, he means that the hits to the economy are becoming unsustainable, that it can't go on forever. You're going to lose people. You're going to have... Suicides by the thousands. You're going to have all sorts of things happen. You're going to have instability. You can't just come in and say, let's close up the United States of America, the biggest, the most successful country in the world by far. And then he broke some news. I'd love to have it open by Easter. Okay, I would love to have it open by Easter. And that news was that he believes that by April 12th, which is Easter, that that could be when the country and its economy are reopened. It's such an important day for other reasons, but I'll make it an important day for this too. I would love to have the country 
opened up and they're just raring to go by Easter. Maggie, this seems very much at odds with the messaging coming from more local leaders and health officials in the areas of the U.S. that have been most directly hit by this pandemic so far. I'm thinking, for example, of the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, who was warning New York residents... Look, this can go on for several months, okay? That they should be preparing for four, six... Eight months, nine months. Nine months of life under isolation and shutdown to fight the coronavirus. Michael, about half an hour or so before Mike Pence started this town hall... You have 20,000 ventilators in the stockpile. Release the ventilators to New York. Andrew Cuomo was pleading with the federal government to send more resources, especially ventilators, because the number of cases that are severe in New York is growing and keeps getting bigger and bigger, and it is outpacing the number of materials that they have for doctors to treat them. I need the ventilators in 14 days. Only the federal government has that power. You have health officials in New York, health officials in California, health officials in President Trump's own government saying we are not just a mere two or three weeks away from things going back to normal. And they're basing that not just on idle projections, but watching what those curves have looked like in terms of the spread of the virus. Well, so Maggie, help us understand how we got here and why this is the message from the president at this critical moment when how we respond what measures we take and how long we take those measures really matters. And so I wonder where you think that starts. Where do we begin to understand that? Michael, you need to go back to January 22nd when the president was in Davos for the World Economic Forum. It's great to see you. Thank you Thank for you. joining us again in Davos. We've done this before. That's right. Mm -hmm. And he did an interview with CNBC. And at that point, the virus was already in the U.S. Uh, the CDC... Uh, has identified a case of coronavirus uh, in Washington state. And he was asked by the interviewer if he was concerned that this could become a pandemic. Have you been briefed by the CDC? I have. Are there words about a pandemic at this point? No, we're not at all. And, uh, and the president's response was, no, not at all. It's one person coming in from China, and we have it under control. It's uh, going to be just fine. Okay. He didn't want to talk about it publicly at the time. And why do you think that was? Well, according to a number of people who were in contact with him, it was because he didn't want to rattle the financial markets, hmm. that he was hoping that it was going to stay under control. And the stock markets are his political weather vane, and he thinks they need to stay up in order for him to win re-election. And he didn't want to do anything to disturb that, and he didn't want to create a panic. Okay, so what happened next? So after that, a couple of days later, as there were more cases— and it was clear that it was spreading out of China, where it originated. The president took this move that he was widely criticized for by Democrats and even some Republicans at the time, which was he halted a number of flights from China into the U.S. Disney's closed. Yeah. Movie theaters are closed. Hospitals being built. I think we're now up to our eighth case in the United States. Um, how concerned are you? Well, we pretty much shut it down coming in from China. The idea was to halt the spread of the disease, keep transmissions to a minimum. He was accused of xenophobia. He was accused of making a racist move. At the end of the day, it was probably effective because yeah. it did actually take a pretty aggressive measure. 
against the spread of the virus. The problem is it was one of the last things that he did for several weeks. Hmm. So the right decision in retrospect, but not accompanied by similar actions that might have contained transmission. That's exactly right. In the same way that George W. Bush was criticized for his mission accomplished banner about Iraq, the president treated that moment as if it was his mission accomplished moment. Hmm. He did not do anything after that in terms of alerting the public or telling people to be safe or telling people to take precautions. And it basically squandered several weeks within the U.S. Right. Looking back at the timeline, we can now see that on the same day that the president stopped those flights from China, the coronavirus was already being reported by the WHO in Japan and South Korea. And those countries are still sending their citizens to the United States on flights that have not been stopped. So the horse is out of the barn. Exactly. It was not anything close to a whole-of-government approach. And at that point, there was a task force that was formed, and it was being led by the Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar. Mm -hmm. But it was outside of the White House— and it was rife with all kinds of turf battles. And hmm. the president, meanwhile, was still trying not to talk about it. And succeeding in that, for the most part. And succeeding in that, for the most part. It was not something that came up in interviews that he did, which were mostly with friendly interviewers who weren't going to ask him things that he didn't want to talk about. And look, it's not as if it wasn't getting news coverage. The New York Times had it on the front page almost every day from the end of January. It was very clear that this was a global crisis, but it was not being treated as an American crisis. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of that is because the president just was not talking about it. And do we know what information the president is receiving during this time? Is he getting a bunch of briefings, one would think he would be, that are conveying the seriousness of the approaching situation? There's conflicting information, Michael, about exactly how specific and how alarmed the briefing materials the president was receiving were at this time. We understand that a lot of folks in the National Security Council were taking it very seriously, and that information had been passed to him. We understand that Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary, took it very seriously, but it's not clear that he was sharing all of that with the president or that he was being allowed to tell it to the president. There were some people in the White House who viewed Alex Azar in particular as, quote-unquote, alarmist, thought mm -hmm. that he was overstating the threat. And when the president doesn't want to take something particularly seriously, he'll often poll test advisors until he finds the one who agrees with him that he shouldn't take it seriously. Mm -hmm. And I have every reason to believe that he was looking for people to affirm his sense that this didn't really need to be addressed. And one of the places that he would go to hear his own thoughts affirmed, or for solace, was Fox News. If you've ever had a question whether the mainstream media distorts, whips up, throws things out of focus, or has an agenda, especially when it comes to the Trump administration, look no further than coronavirus. They were very much echoing what he believed and wanted to believe, which was that the criticisms about inactivity, that he wasn't doing enough, was all part of an effort to harm him. This is yet another attempt to impeach the president. And sadly, it seems they care very little for any of the destruction they are leaving in their wake. Losses in the stock market. All this, unfortunately, just part of the political casualties for them. At this point, the president is in India being feted by Prime Minister Modi. 
and public health officials start basically taking matters into their own hands. Mm. They start giving public warnings. One top health expert gave a press briefing where she said that... Now, it's not so much a question of if this will happen anymore, but rather more a question of exactly when this will happen. It was no longer a question of if the virus would spread in the United States, but when. And how many people in this country will become infected, and how many of those will develop severe or more complicated disease? And that hospitals and businesses and schools should start making preparations accordingly. Right. This was as the president was now on his way back from India, and the stock market reacted terribly to these warnings. And the president was furious. He called the Health and Human Services Secretary, saying that the remarks had rattled people. He called one of his top economic advisors, Larry Kudlow, wondering what could be done to stop the slide. Hmm. But at this point, as angry as the president was, it was clear to him and to his advisors that this was no longer something he could ignore. We'll be right back. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. No one else built this bold because no one else thought this big. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetrics 2H 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not endorsement. So Maggie, what happens once the president recognizes that this is something that has to be addressed? The president put Vice President Mike Pence in charge of the task force. Good afternoon. Uh, We just completed today's uh, lengthy meeting of the White House Coronavirus Task Force and... uh, And that was a big moment because this task force that had been kind of diffuse and fighting with itself was for the first time being run from the White House. And it was meant to signal that the president was taking this seriously. So Mike Pence had control of this thing for basically two weeks. And during that time... We're continuing to lean into this effort in full partnership with state and local health authorities around the country... He was trying to communicate that they were working on a plan. Uh, To ensure that we do everything to prevent the spread of the disease. To address the spread. That they were working on guidelines. That they were aware of problems with testing for this virus that have plagued this administration for weeks. Uh, To mitigate its expansion and to provide necessary treatment to Americans that have been impacted. And after two weeks, Vice President Mike Pence was getting a lot of praise for Mm. his demeanor in these briefings. If if I may, we'll be back here every day. Get used to seeing us. We're going to bring the experts in. We're going to make sure and give you the best and most high-quality real-time information uh, from the best people in the world. So thank you all for being here. And that became a point of concern for some of President Trump's own advisors who didn't want to see Mike Pence get all of the attention. Huh. So the people around the president didn't want the vice president, rather than the president, to be the one seen as quarterbacking this major national crisis. 
That's right. There was concern among the president's top advisors that it would look as if Vice President Pence was basically doing the job the president should be doing, calming a nation, giving out accurate information, sounding as if he's in charge. And that led to this idea that the president should give an Oval Office address. Hmm. So on March 11th, the same day the WHO declared the coronavirus a global pandemic, President Trump sat in the Oval Office behind the Resolute Desk at 9 p.m., and the Klieg lights came on and the teleprompter started rolling, and he gave an address to the nation. My fellow Americans, tonight I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak that started in China and is now spreading throughout the world. For the first time, he acknowledged that this could impact older people. The highest risk is for elderly population with underlying health conditions. The elderly population must be very, very careful. He talked about a ban on most travel from Europe. To keep new cases from entering our shores, we will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. The new rules will go into effect Friday at midnight. But the address, which was brief, as Oval Office addresses usually are, was seen as a disaster. Why? The president looked uncomfortable. He stumbled over the teleprompter, which he never does well with. I am confident that by counting and continuing to take these tough measures, we will... And it was riddled with errors, including about the travel ban. And these prohibitions will not only apply to the tremendous amount of trade and cargo, but various other things as we get approval. He suggested that it would apply to cargo and trade. It didn't. And those mistakes sent the stock markets plummeting. Right. And my assumption was that the president hoped the speech would do the exact opposite, which is it would give confidence to the stock market and send it back up. That's right. The markets continued to tank over the next couple of days. And aides started realizing that there had to be a major course correction or the presidency could be threatened. And the president realized this, too. So on March 17th... I would like to begin uh, by announcing some important developments in our war against the Chinese virus. We saw a pretty different tone from President Trump as he talked about this virus. We'll be invoking the Defense Production Act just in case we need it. Last week, I signed an emergency declaration under the Stafford Act. He described it soberly. He suddenly seemed willing to answer questions without being combative. Virus. Do you consider America to be on a wartime footing in terms of fighting this virus? I do. I actually do. I'm looking at it that way because, you know... If, uh, he described himself as a wartime president. He seemed to be taking this seriously in all of the ways that a nation usually looks for a leader to take such a crisis seriously. Yeah. It's a very tough situation. You're, you have to do things. You have to, you have to close parts of an economy that... Six weeks ago, we're, we're the best they've ever been. We had the best economy we've ever had. And then one day, you have to close it down in order to defeat this enemy. And uh, But we're doing it, and we're doing it well. And I'll I tell you, the American people have been incredible. This was dramatically different from what we had heard just a few days earlier. Well, so, Mikey, how then do we get to today, where one week later, the situation with this pandemic has only gotten dramatically worse The virus is exploding in places like New York. The number of infections and deaths are rising across the country. And yet, the president's message has now 
kind of reverted back to where it was weeks and weeks ago. His language has changed. His overall comportment and the words he's using, they've all kind of returned to a period where he was not taking this as seriously. There have been people in the president's circle who this entire time, even as the president changed his tone, still thought that some of the moves that the government was making were too aggressive. Hmm. And those aides started late last week talking about the fact that they might want to revisit some of these guidelines and ease up on some of them for targeted groups after this initial 15-day period had ended, which is going to be March 30th. Mm -hmm. The president started getting the message in earnest on Sunday night that this is something that he needed to worry about, that there might not be an economy to return to Mm. once the country was fully back to normal. And so he tweeted on Sunday night that the cure couldn't be worse than the disease. And that was the beginning of a massive shift of the federal government, which had moved toward aggressive measures to mitigate this virus and its spread, to suddenly suggesting that they could see the end nearing. We can't lose a Boeing, and we can't lose some of these companies, and companies, frankly, Bill, that were solid as like AAA companies, because of what's happened over the last couple of weeks, they go from AAA to being like they could use a hand. Tough time. We can't, right, we can't lose those companies. If we lose those companies, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of jobs, millions of jobs. The faster we go back, the better it's going to be. We have a pent-up energy that's going to be unbelievable. We're going to bring it back fast. Is there a meaningful contingency of conservative leaders, thinkers and politicians, economists even, people in business who feel this way, who feel like there's been an overreaction to this virus in the form of shutting down the American economy? There are. Some of them are people who have been the president's advisors on and off for a while, like Stephen Moore of Freedom Works, who's an economist and who advised the president at various points. He wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal with Art Laffer, who the president gave the Medal of Freedom to not that long ago. And in that op-ed, they said, essentially, that the government can't sustain this, that the Mm. economy can't sustain this, and that there needs to be less draconian moves made to keep people safe but still allow the country to run. Mm -hmm. There is no public health expert in the government telling the president that these moves are too severe. There is no public health expert in the government telling the president that the the curve is about to let up on the spread of the virus. Everything the president has done about this virus has been a reaction to something. Mm -hmm. And right now he is reacting to pressure to reopen portions of the economy as the job losses are facing potential millions by April. You know, I don't know whether the president would frame it this way, but I wonder if he's forcing all of us to reckon with what is the ultimate moral dilemma of this pandemic, which is what economic and social costs we're willing to pay to save some uncertain number of lives. And he seems to be saying, in effect, I'm willing to take the risk that a certain number of Americans will get sick and will die for the greater economic good and health of the United States. 
I mean, think of it. We average 36,000 people. Death, death. I'm not talking about cases. I'm talking about death. 36,000 deaths a year. People die, 36, from the flu. But we've never closed down the country for the flu. So you say to yourself, what is this all about? Now, how did you... It's never been done. How did you process that? Uh, not good. I wasn't happy about it. Michael, I think that's very much what he's saying. And in fairness to him, Governor Cuomo has openly voiced the same moral dilemma that he's wrestling with. It's just that Governor Cuomo came down on the other side of it, which was that there is no cost that can be put on, on human life. Yeah, my mother is not expendable. And your mother is not expendable. And our brothers and sisters are not expendable. And we're not going to accept a premise that human life is disposable. And we're not going to put a dollar figure on human life. Uh, first order of business is save lives, period, whatever it costs. New York has been, as we know, much harder hit than most of the rest of the country. Most of the rest of the country has not had to go through what New York is going through right now with surges in hospital stays and, and a number of sick people. The president says most of the country agrees with him. And maybe that's why. But the president is taking a really large gamble and going with his gut that the greater good will be served for the rest of the country by trying to preserve the economic health of the country more quickly than his health experts would like him to. Maggie, thank you very much. Michael, thank you. On Tuesday night, Dr. Anthony Fauci, an infectious disease specialist and an influential member of the president's coronavirus task force, was asked about the president's plan to reopen the U.S. economy by Easter. Where are you now this time last, 19 days from now? So, I mean, that's really very flexible. We, we just had a conversation with the president in, in the Oval Office talking about, you know, you can look at a date, but you've got to be very flexible. And on a, on a literally day-by-day day and week-by-week week basis, you need to evaluate the feasibility of what you're trying to do. With the president standing beside him, Fauci said it would be foolhardy to ease restrictions if major parts of the country were still in the throes of the pandemic. Obviously, no one is going to want to tone down things when you see what's going on in a place like New York City. I mean, I mean that's just, you know, good public health practice and common sense. We'll be right back. With no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, banking with Capital One is like the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Kind of like choosing to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with our top-rated app, you can deposit checks and transfer money anytime, anywhere, making Capital One an even easier decision. That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Here's what else you need to know today. Today, at 12 o'clock, the whole country, 
संपूर्ण लॉकडाउन होने जा रहा है Nationwide lockdowns over the virus continued on Tuesday, with India becoming the latest and largest country to require citizens to remain indoors. In India's case, for the next 21 days. अगर ये 21 दिन नहीं संभले, तो देश और आपका परिवार 21 साल पीछे चला जाएगा. In a televised speech. Prime Minister Narendra Modi told Indians, "Quote: If you can't handle these 21 days, this country will go back 21 years." And in the United States, Senate leaders said they were nearing a deal on a historic $2 trillion stimulus bill after days of objections from Democrats over who would monitor billions of dollars in loans to American businesses. We've been fighting very hard that any bailout fund, money to industries that have trouble, have real oversight and transparency. That's vitally important. On Tuesday, Democrats said they had persuaded Republicans and the Trump administration to allow an independent inspector and a congressional oversight board to scrutinize the loans, and were almost ready to support the bill. I hope. I pray. That we can come together very quickly and pass in large numbers a bipartisan bill that will help the American people who so badly, badly, badly need our help. That's it for the daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. You're still running your business on QuickBooks. More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. Ninety-three percent of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com/daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com/daily. NetSuite.com/daily.